All right, take your Bibles and open them up to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38, it's on, it's on page 33 in our uh, welcome table Bibles, if you have one of those. This is another one of those, um, this is another one of those, I, I can't believe it's actually in the Bible stories, where you're like, what, hold on, this is like, is this a weird English translation, or is this actually what's going on here? But we've been, give, we, we've been in Genesis long enough to know uh, that, that the Bible pulls no punches when it comes to showing the devastating effects of sin and, 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 the, and the, the, those effects on humanity as a whole. Sin is it's terrible, and, and it's destructive, and it brings us down into that destruction. Through his word, through the scriptures, God leaves no room for any person to conclude that they have true, that they can have true life without him. This passage today is going to remind us of that. The repulsive reality of sin exposes our exhaustive need for rescue. Today we're going to get the, a, a brutally honest look at, at, at the family through whom God chose to bring the promised rescuer. Now you might think that we're going to learn more about Joseph this morning since the narrative shifted from Jacob to Joseph last week, but we're actually going to look at one of Jacob's other sons, Judah. And at first, this story about Judah may seem like a, a random and unrelated interruption just as Joseph's story is getting started. But by the time we finish Genesis 38 today, we'll see that this story is a story of tremendous importance and one that we cannot afford to overlook and pass by. So I want to pray and ask for the Lord to open our eyes, and then we'll dig in. Father, your word tells us you are good and upright, and you show sinners the way. Your word is a lamp for our feet. It's a light for our path. Lord, we pray that you would make your ways known to us and teach us your paths. By your faithful love, Lord, guide us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. We ask that you would use your word today to lead us graciously to Jesus Christ, who is the way who is the truth, who is the life. And we ask this in his great and gracious name. Amen. Despicable, illicit, wretched, scandalous, shameful. These are all words that accurately describe the story that we are about to read, that we're going to look at today. Are these words accurate in describing your story? And if they are, is that something that you are freely able to admit? You see, we all have this tendency to want to, to sanitize our stories, so to speak, to, to downplay our downfalls. And if we're openly honest about the reason that we do that, I'm willing to bet, especially if you're like me, that, that, that most of us in here would say that it's because we place too much stock in what others think of us. We're afraid that if people knew the real depths of our depravity, they'd be appalled or disgusted, and they, they wouldn't want anything to do with us anymore, or worse, once they heard about it, they'd tell everybody else about it, and then we'd be publicly humiliated and left all alone to wallow in our shame. I've feared that before, have you? Here's the irony. It's our fear of others actually keeps us from admitting our fear of others. 
And so we get good at making ourselves look better than we really are. Instead of admitting that our sins are what they are, acts of rebellion against God, we soften their severity by calling them mistakes. And instead of admitting that those sins came from the selfish desires of our own hearts within us, we anchor them to the people and the environments and the situations around us. We end up actually turning the occasions in which we sin into the sources that cause our sin. If you were here last week, you, you heard Ryan say, the sin, sin that's done to you does not give you a reason to sin against others, right? We sanitize our stories. And all of this only adds to the depth of our need for rescue. And that's why, that is why we need stories like this one in the Bible. Because Genesis 38 is going to remind us of this. God redeems the worst of sinners and cleanses them from the dirtiest of sins. God redeems the worst of sinners and cleanses them from the dirtiest of sins. I didn't bring that intro this morning to, to, to draw up shame in your heart, but I do want to grab our attention so that we see this truth right here because it's glorious and it's absolutely necessary for us. Today's real life story, one that actually happened in history, is not only going to prove this to be true, but it's also going to point us to the reason why it's true. And it's going to help us see that as followers of Christ, we shouldn't sanitize our stories because Christ has already cleansed us from all of our sin. You ready to dig in? Let's go. Genesis 38, verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and he slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She, con she gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, the entire book of Genesis places a heavy emphasis on the continuation of family lines. This stems from the, the original mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve for them to be fruitful and multiply. This was before the fall in the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. But the continuation of one's family takes on particular importance when we consider God's promise in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve after the fall, after they rebelled in, in, in sin against him, God promised that he would put hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, and that one day her offspring would come and crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would crush his heel. It was God's promise to restore all of uh, 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 that humanity had broken through their sin and to put an end to sin itself, to death, and to uh, the serpent, a.k.a. Satan, to do these things once and for all. Now, as we've progressed through Genesis, we've learned that this promised serpent crusher would, would come uh, from Eve's line, right, down through the line of Abraham and then through Isaac and through Jacob, but that's where we're at. We don't know who's next. Today's story records the preservation of the family line of Judah, 
one of Jacob's 12 sons, and it's filled with reminders both, uh, uh, both of the devastating consequences of sin and of the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. And in these first few verses, we get hints that point us in both directions. Now, we know by now that marriage to a Canaanite woman is a big no-no for Abraham's family, right? This has been made clear over and over. If you've been here for, for any time, amount of time in Genesis, chances are you, you've, you've come across this, Okay. Here we're told that around the same time that Joseph was being taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelites who who purchased him from his brothers, then Judah now is leaving the brothers, and he's he's getting cozy with the Canaanites, okay? His friend Hira was a Canaanite from the city of Adullam, which is about 12 miles southwest of Bethlehem. Verse 2 tells us that Judah married the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. Note the language that's used in verse 2. Judah saw, and he took. We're familiar with those words by now as well. Language from the garden and the sin that entered because they saw and they took. So far, things aren't looking so good for Judah, right? We're also told that Judah has three sons. Now, even though they they came from his Canaanite wife, the fact that there are three here are, are, is, is significant. Adam had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Terah had three sons, Abram, a.k.a. Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. This line of the promised serpent crusher continued from Adam through Seth to Noah, then from Noah through Shem to Terah, and then onward from Terah through Abraham. And now here, Abraham's great-grandson Judah had three sons following in the same pattern as these other patriarchs through which the promise was carried. So linguistically, there's, there's, there's a hint of hope here for us, for, 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 for Moses, the author, for his readers. Hey, hold on. We're learning about Joseph, but what's up with Judah? Maybe the promised serpent crusher is coming through him. It hints at this possibility. And this hope builds as Judah finds a wife for his firstborn son, Ur. Why? To carry on the family, right? To, to, to keep going. But as we're about to see, things take a downhill turn really, really quickly. Look at verse 7. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, He might die too like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Yes, that is in the Bible. We're not told specifically what Ur did, but God clearly determined that it was evil and that he was evil, and God put him to death because of it. This is a good reminder that that sometimes God's justice is immediate. Sometimes God's justice is immediate, and we need to know this. We need to remember God has every right 
to bring judgment upon whomever he wants, whenever he wants, because we've all done what is evil in his sight. And we are all deserving of the death that he just meted out to Ur and to Onan. Sin is evil. It's what it is. It's evil, and we're all guilty of it. But that's what makes God's grace so incredible, that he would patiently endure the evil deeds of his people in order to punish his own son in our place so that we could be forgiven. There's hope. There's hope. God is never wrong in his assessment of the human heart. Not once. You ever been wrong with your impression about someone? God is never wrong with his assessment of a person's heart. Ur was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord justly put him to death because of it. This is another reminder of the seriousness of our sin and our dire need to be rescued from it. Ur's death left Tamar without a husband, and so Judah told his second-born son, Onan, to perform his duty as Tamar's brother-in-law, marry her in order to produce children for her that could carry on his deceased brother's name. Uh, a fancy word is leveret marriage. Leveret is the Latin word, uh, comes from the Latin word for brother-in-law. This was, a, this was a common practice in those days, not just among the, the forming nation of Israel, but, but among other nations as well because it was so important that family lines, family names would be carried on. But producing offspring on behalf of his brother meant that Onan's firstborn son would legally become Ur's firstborn son, and that would deprive Onan's other children of status and, and shrink their portions of the family inheritance. And so instead of doing the honorable thing and providing children for his deceased brother, Onan purposely did everything he could to prevent conception. And while it appeared from an outside perspective that he was doing what his father had requested of him, he married Tamar. The reality is that Onan was using Tamar for his own sexual pleasure. He made an empty promise and he fulfilled his own selfish desires. There's nothing honorable about what he did to her. In fact, verse 10 tells us, the Lord saw it was evil, and he put Onan to death. Sometimes God's judgment is immediate. If you're keeping track, that's now two of Judah's three sons who were evil in God's eyes and were immediately judged for their wickedness. Not only was the continuation of Judah's family line in jeopardy now, but so was the hope of this promised serpent crusher. And to make matters worse, Judah didn't want to give his last son, Shelah, to Tamar because he was afraid that Shelah would end up dead like his brothers. Track record's not so good so far. But Judah failed to see, like, we're, we're, when, we, when it says that, that he was evil in the Lord's sight, that's Moses telling us. That's the narrator telling us, giving us the perspective. Judah doesn't have that perspective. He failed to see that their deaths were a result of God's righteous judgment, and instead he assumed that Tamar was the problem. Like, like she was cursed, like she was bad luck. I got to keep my last son away from her, and he'll be all right. And so Judah made an empty promise. He told Tamar, hey, go live with your father, stay in his house, as a widow, he'll take care of you. And when Shayla is old enough to marry you, then I'll, then I'll send him to you. 
But Judah had no intention of giving his last son to his daughter-in-law. Look at verse 12. After a long time, literally, and there were many days. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. I'll come back to that in a second. Shelah was old enough to marry Tamar, but Judah had not followed through on his promise. And Tamar was fully aware of it. And as a widow, her livelihood and her her status in the community was at stake. But in verse 12, we find out that Judah actually became a widower. And after he mourned the death of his wife with the whatever the appropriate time was there, around uh, that time came the, the, the annual shearing of the sheep. And so he went up with his Canaanite friend, Hira the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to go participate in that. Would have been a festival, would have been a, a, a big to-do. And when Tamar heard about it, she changed her clothes and she put herself in Judah's path. Just read verse 15, but let's pick back up right there. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He went over to her and he said, come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and, and slept with her. And she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. Judah didn't recognize his daughter-in-law because she wasn't dressed as a widow. He'd sent her away to her father's house. Now, betrothed women wore veils in those days, so it's possible that when Tamar heard that that Judah was heading up to Timnah, that she'd gone there to remind him about his promise to give her as a wife to his son, Shelah, but Judah saw the veil and he concluded that she was a prostitute. And once again, we see Judah's true character here. The man who spearheaded the sale of his brother Joseph to slave traders propositioned his daughter-in-law for sex because he thought she was a prostitute and his own wife was dead and he had unfulfilled urges. Whether or not Tamar had originally gone there to appeal for her betrothal to Shela, she let Judah go on believing that she was a prostitute. And she asked him what he would give her in exchange for sleeping with her. She was on, uh, since, since he was on his way to the annual shearing of his flock, he promised, hey, I'll send you a young goat. When I get up there, I'll send it back to you. But Tamar knew that Judah had already made her one empty promise, right? She wasn't going to let him do it again, and so she made him give her a down payment up front. The signet ring... The staff, they were unique markers of identity. It would be like leaving a fingerprint or a driver's license or something like that. The, the signet ring was, was uh, most likely attached to a cord and worn around a neck, and so that's why she's asking for the cord as well. 
Judah agreed to the deal, slept with Tamar, all the while thinking she was a prostitute and failing to realize that she was his daughter-in-law. And then this one-night stand resulted in a pregnancy. Now, as we're reading this, we're faced with, with a, a moral dilemma of sorts, right? We know that Judah's actions were sinfully motivated, but what should we conclude about Tamar here? On the one hand, she wasn't plotting revenge. She wasn't intending to, to, to be wicked toward him in that sense. She was actually trying to preserve his family because he shirked his own responsibility to do so by keeping his last son from her. But like so many others in Judah's family, Tamar used deception. She used disguise in order to try and secure the blessing of the firstborn. So from a a spiritual perspective, this kind of deceptive behavior has not one time been seen in a positive light in Genesis. It's always been viewed as sinful. So while Tamar's motives seem culturally right, her actions are spiritually wrong. She's, she's made herself in need of rescue, just as Judah has, just like we have. It doesn't diminish the sin that was committed against her, but neither does the sin that was committed against her give her permission to sinfully deceive others, right? And yet the outcome of this encounter wasn't that the Lord put her to death. He didn't put Judah to death. He actually brought life. She became pregnant. Like the other matriarchs in Genesis, Tamar was childless, right? But while they were childless because God had closed their wombs, she was childless because God kept killing her husbands because they were evil men. And yet, here she deceived Judah, and Judah thinks she's a prostitute. This is a sinful encounter, and yet God allowed her to conceive a child. What's going on? Why does he kill Ur and Onan, but let them live? This is where we need to remember that God doesn't reward sin, but he does redeem sinners. God does not reward sin, but he does redeem sinners. And Tamar's pregnancy plays a a very important role in securing that redemption. God doesn't make empty promises. Not one. God does not make empty promises. He made a promise to bring the serpent crusher, and he was keeping his promise according to his purposes and in spite of the sins of his people. Only he can work through a messy situation like this in order to bring the cleansing that we all need. But because we tend to make such a mess of our situations, and we tend to compound that, we're all prone to try to clean them up ourselves. This is what Judah tried to do. Look at verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men about, uh, of the place, this is uh, Hira, the Adulamite, he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There's been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adulamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides... The men of the place said, there's been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. You know what Judah was doing here? 
He's trying to sanitize the story. His signet ring, his staff, they're not just markers of his identity. These are indicators of his prominence in the community. Not every man carried around those things. But because Judah had thought that the woman that he gave them to was a prostitute, he wanted to get them back as soon as possible in order to to cover his tracks, in order to protect his reputation. So instead of taking the promised goat back himself, what did he do? He sent his Canaanite friend to do it. And at that time, cult prostitutes were associated with religious fertility practices among the Canaanites, and so they were more socially accepted than other prostitutes. So it's possible here that Hira called her a cult prostitute, either to help protect Judah's reputation or to keep from offending the the people of the city in name by implying that they readily welcomed any kind of prostitution. Like, hey, where's where's the hooker? Right? You don't just walk into some city and say that. Either way, Hira's search came up empty and Judah tried to make it look like he did the right thing even though he was really trying to cover his own tracks. He essentially told Hira, hey, listen, let's just, let's just keep this between you and me, okay? If anyone found out about it, this would be incredibly embarrassing. Besides, I did try to give her the goat, right? She just wasn't there to get it. It's her loss, not mine. And the man who had been making empty promises tried to make it seem like he was the promise keeper. But his charade was about to come to an end. Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I'm pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring and cord and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her intimately again. Enough time had passed that Tamar now could no longer conceal her secret, right? She's got a baby bump. That's hard to conceal. And when Judah heard about it, he was furious. And in a twist of hypocritical irony, the man who had no qualms about propositioning a prostitute was now irate to learn that his daughter-in-law had been acting like one. What she had done was evil in his sight, and he demanded that she immediately be put to death for it. More irony, right? The man who failed to see God's righteous judgment against his own sons was now self-righteously demanding judgment against his daughter-in-law while failing to see that he was the one who got her pregnant in the first place. But as she was being brought out to be put to death, Tamar revealed the undeniable evidence of the paternity test, right? Hey, the guy who did this to me is the one that is the owner of these things. Examine them. Whose are they? You know that, that, that phrase? We, we've heard that before. Examine it. That's what Judah and his brothers said to Jacob in the last chapter when they handed him Joseph's bloody robe. Examine it. Whose is this? Except they were doing that. 
They were saying that to cover up sin that they had committed. She was doing it to expose the truth. The man who did this to me is the owner of these things. Do you know him? And in verse 26, for the first time, for the first time in this whole story and in, in anything that we've seen of Judah so far, Judah did something that was truly upright. His sin was exposed. He didn't try to hide it anymore. He didn't try to excuse it away. He confessed his sin. He admitted to his guilt. And he did not know Tamar intimately again. This was a major turning point in Judah's life. God graciously exposed Judah's sin and his need for rescue. And as we'll see toward the, the final chapters in Genesis, this, this man, Judah, who sold his own brother for his own selfish gain, will end up offering himself as a substitute in order to save another brother. This is the turning point for Judah. This is God's redeeming work in Judah's life. This radical transformation that began here with humble repentance and in, the, in these final verses, we're going to give, uh, we'll be given a glimpse of how God would use Judah to bring about a far, far greater redemption. Look at verse 27. When the time came for her to give birth, Tamar, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, this one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back, and out came his brother, and she said, what a breakout you've made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out, and he was named Zerah. Now, like Rebecca, Tamar also had twins in her womb, and in both cases, the younger son struggled against the older son and gained the rights of the firstborn. In this case, Zerah was the one that put out his hand and was prematurely called the firstborn. But after, after the midwife tied the scarlet thread around his hand, he, he, he pulled it back and his brother was the firstborn instead. Perez means breakout, which fits with what the midwife said about him in verse 29. This story ends by showing that Judah's family line was preserved in spite of Judah's own sinful actions. The story ends by reminding us of God's faithfulness to a sinful people. But when we consider the grand story of redemption, the end of this story reveals so much more to us. Listen to this. Perez grew up and he had sons. And then his sons had sons. And then they had sons and so on until six generations later, a descendant of Judah was born, get this, to a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. You know what that descendant's name was? Boaz. And you know what Boaz did? He performed his duty to his dead relative, and he married his dead relative's wife, giving her sons and preserving the family name. Her name was Ruth. She was a Moabite woman, a descendant of Lot. Yeah. The same lot whose daughters got him drunk and slept with him in order that he would get them pregnant and they could preserve his family line. You know what one of their sons' name was? Moab. Ruth and Boaz had a great-grandson named David. 
The same David who became king of Judah and then all of Israel. The same David who saw a Canaanite man's wife bathing on the roof and took her and slept with her. He saw and he took. And he got her pregnant. And he had her husband killed. The same David with whom God made a covenant to establish his kingdom and his throne forever through one of his descendants. And generations after generations go by Until one day, from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David was born to a pregnant virgin in a scandalous relationship, engaged to be married a man that she had not known intimately. You know what that descendant's name was? You know what his name is? Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who was and is and is to come. He took on human flesh. He was born into Judah's family tree. He was born into this mess so that he could save people and cleanse them from this mess. In spite of Judah's despicably sinful behavior, God graciously preserved his promise to provide the serpent crusher. God did not reward Judah's sin, but through Judah, God brought the redeemer of sinners. You can't make this story up. And Christ brought about that redemption by living a a perfectly righteous life, by being put to death by God as a substitute for all of those who were evil in the Lord's sight. And by rising from the dead to prove his own righteousness and to give eternal life to all who trust in him. Listen, as those who trust in Christ, we've been redeemed by this serpent crusher. He's cleansed us from all of our sin. He's covered us with his perfect righteousness forever. You know what that means? That means that no matter how despicable or illicit or wretched or scandalous or shameful our stories are, we don't have to sanitize them because Christ has made us perfectly clean. Instead, we can be honest. We can be honest about the things that we've done because they no longer hold power over us. Why? Because Christ has defeated the accuser. And he's taken our shame. We read the last part of Romans 8 for our prayer time this morning. You know how it starts? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not a little bit. None. We shouldn't downplay our sin but we also shouldn't exaggerate it. Listen, we don't share our stories to glorify ourselves by by appearing better than we really are, but we also don't share our stories to glorify our sin by overemphasizing it. Why do we share our stories? We share them to glorify our Savior, the Redeemer, the Serpent Crusher, the Promised One, Jesus Christ, God's grace in the flesh to us. Think about how much more the grace of God in Jesus Christ is magnified for others when we're actually honest about what it is that Christ has rescued us from. So who needs to hear your story, your honest story, so that you can tell them Christ's story? 
This story in Genesis 38 showed Judah at his worst, but it also shows how God works through even the worst things and uses the most unlikely, undeserving, and unworthy people to display his unwavering grace. Praise God. If God can use Judah's story, listen, he can use yours and he can use mine. I was exposed to pornography when I was four years old. And for nearly two decades of my life, I used women objectively for my own desires. Through an ongoing addiction to it, I tried my best to hide it, to sanitize my story. I would tell accountability partners, Have you ever done this? You ever done this? Hey, I'm struggling. But I was walking in death. Would you pray that, that, that God would guard my heart? That's what I would ask him. And what I really needed to say is, I need, I need help. And as I sanitized my story, the reality was that I was just like Judah, looking for opportunities to satisfy my own desires and then trying to cover up my tracks afterward. But you need to hear this, and I need to be reminded of this even as I share it. Christ redeemed me. Unworthy as I am, Christ redeemed me. He rescued me from that addiction. He saved me from slavery to sin, and he took upon himself the punishment of death that I deserved because of it. He cleansed me from my guilt, and he took away my shame. Amen. Do you know that he can do that for you? We don't just get together and sing these songs because they make us feel good. We don't just get together and open God's word because it's trying to tell us or, or we're trying to tell each other what we want to hear. I certainly would have picked this passage. We come and we gather together as Christ's body of redeemed people because every one of us has reason to praise. Christ can do this for you. No matter what you try to do to hide your sin from others, you need to know this. You cannot hide it from the Lord. He knows the evil that you've done. He knows the evil that's inside of you. It's evil. It's evil. It's evil in his sight. And just like I do, just like we all do, just like Onan and Ur and everyone else in this story, just like they did, we all deserve to be put to death immediately for it. So we need to ask something. Why are you still alive right now? Why are you still alive right now? Sitting here listening to this, this ridiculous story from Genesis 38. If you don't know Christ, could it be that God wants to reveal to you the immeasurable riches of his grace through his son? Through his son. The serpent crusher. The one he promised would come, and he kept that promise. When God exposes your heart and presents the evidence of your sin, why not just go, yeah, I'm guilty? Why not look to Christ and say, that man is more right than I? 
Why not confess your sin and your need for his rescue? Listen, don't try to conceal what he's already revealed as an act of grace to draw you to himself. I think there's another book over there. It might be, might be there. It, it may not be anymore in our, in our book stall there. Nancy Guthrie is the author of a book called Saints and Scoundrels in the Story of Jesus. And in it, she says, Jesus was the only member of his family who never brought shame upon the family. Instead, he took upon himself the shame of every person in the family tree. Hallelujah. Why not trade your guilt and shame for forgiveness and joy? Why not join Christ's family through faith in him? Why not turn from your sins and trust in Christ today, today? Despicable illicit, wretched, scandalous, shameful. Yes, these are all words that accurately describe the story that we looked at today, but here are some other ones that describe it just as well. Forgivable, redeemable, merciful, gracious, hopeful. That's because this story reminds us that God redeems the worst of sinners and cleanses them from the dirtiest of sins. People need to learn this glorious truth, not just through Judah's story, but through your story and through my story. So let's not sanitize them, but instead let's share them freely and honestly without shame. Why? Because our gracious Redeemer has already made us clean. And he's changed our records of sin into testimonies of his grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gut-wrenching reality that is your word. And we thank you for the beautiful picture of redemption that we see in it, that it leads us directly to Christ, strips us of our own self-reliance and self-dependence, Lord, in in grace, you leave us in despair so that we look for help outside of ourselves. And in grace, you show us clearly where that help comes from. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has redeemed us. We pray that if anyone in here is still in sin, trying to cover it up, that today's the day we're just honest and we run to Jesus for help. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.